Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, Genesis chapter 2, when God first created mankind, his very first words were, surprisingly, you are free. Free to choose from the infinite variety of creation with only one restriction. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the Apostle Paul adds to those words, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let anyone submit you to the yoke of slavery. When you take the gospel given to us in the book of Romans as a whole, the principle of freedom is at the very heart of the message of Jesus Christ. We're not saved by law-keeping. We're saved by grace. Grace that comes to us freely. Grace that frees us up for a life of obedience. When you compare biblical Christianity to other religious systems, the thing that becomes obvious is that the prohibitions in Christianity are really quite concise by comparison. I mentioned before, but lifelong skeptic H.L. Mencken said, say what you will about the Ten Commandments, but you must always come back to the pleasant fact that there are only ten of them. (laughs) Of course, there are those Christians who are never quite satisfied with the short list. In the Church of Rome, there seemed to be several factions that wanted to make the list longer. Some of them thought that it was okay to go down to the temple marketplace where the pagan priests sold part of their sacrifices. The meat offering was cut in half and part of it was sold to the public. They, they thought it seemed like good stewardship, high-quality meat at a low price. Who cares that it was once on the altar of a pagan god? Others who'd had bad experiences in their previous pagan lifestyle before conversion found this practice completely reprehensible. How could a Christian, a Christian who believed that there was one God, eat meat that had been offered to a pagan deity? They thought there ought to be a rule about this. The Christian Jews, on the other hand, thought that the easiest thing would be to insist that all Christians simply eat kosher. Jew and Gentile alike should follow Old Testament food laws. That would solve the whole problem, they thought. Same issue arose with holidays. The Christian Jews wanted to keep Jewish holidays. Some Greeks wanted to celebrate Greek pagan holidays. Those with more scruples thought that Christians should avoid this kind of celebration altogether and just receive every day as alike from the Lord. Some people thought there ought to be a rule to cover this category. When I was a teenager, I remember a group of of people in our church who began to argue that our church was too worldly, 
that we had compromised too much with the world. So they started with Halloween. A good Christian, they said, shouldn't celebrate this evil holiday. And some parents responded, well, my kids are just having fun. They're not worshiping the devil or sacrificing cats. They're just dressing up and getting candy. But these folks persisted. We needed a rule about whether Christians could celebrate this holiday. And a significant number of people agreed. And they suddenly yanked all their kids out of the church Halloween celebration. They removed their kids from trick-or-treating. And instead, their kids got the privilege of staying home and handing out gospel tracts to all the children who came to their door. Of course, you know that those are the houses that got egged first. (laughs) But they thought the Lord had told them that they had to endure persecution. (laughs) Then these folks decided that Halloween wasn't enough. They were going to go after Christmas. Christmas, they said, was a Roman Catholic holiday. What business do Baptists have celebrating Christmas Mass? Gradually, their list of prohibitions got longer and longer, and the divisions in the church grew and grew. And finally, a whole chunk of disgruntled people left the church altogether because the rest of us were just too worldly. They started their own group. For them, the Christian life was about how many worldly things you could peel away from your own existence. The real Christian, they argued, avoided the theater, never danced, not only declined the glass of champagne at their cousin's wedding, but used it as an opportunity to preach a a sermon about the evils of alcohol. My Sunday school teacher used to talk about the filthy five, those sins that weren't mentioned in Scripture but ought to have been. Drinking, smoking, card playing, theater attendance, and dancing. Even though the Bible doesn't explicitly mention these things, they argued, this is what made you a good and faithful Christian in our culture. This is the sort of thing, these gray areas, these disputed principles that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 14. The question of how should the church handle conflict over matters that are not explicitly condemned in Scripture, and yet some people think are inappropriate. Now, from the very start of this epistle, Paul has been insisting that the gospel of Jesus Christ is from first and last about God's grace and not about our ability to keep the law. Yet it stands as one of the great ironies of Christian history that we can still think of religion in terms of an endless list of rules. We're always prone to return to the sin of the Pharisees. The Christian college I attended, morality was measured with a ruler. Things like hair length and skirt length seemed to be of ultimate importance. Some churches have more more rules on the book than the book of Leviticus, requiring people to sign covenants, promising not to wear makeup, or two-piece bathing suits. When dealing with these questions, the question of meat offered to idols, the question of what celebrations Christians can participate in, questions of questionable matters in the church, the simplest thing in the world for us to do is to make another rule, to create another universal mandate, to get everybody to conform. Either say, of course you you can't eat meat offered to an idol. 
That's tainted meat. What are you thinking? Of course a Christian can't participate in non-Christian holidays. Grow up, everybody. It's, th- this is what the gospel is about. It takes some, some faithfulness and discipline. But I want you to know what the apostle, I want you to notice what the apostle Paul actually does here. He actually doesn't recommend another rule. He says, on matters not directly addressed in scripture, there is freedom of conscience. Notice what he does say. If you can participate in these activities with a clear conscience, in thankfulness to the Lord, then enjoy yourselves. Feel free. But if you can't participate with a clear conscience, then don't. It's as simple as that. What the Apostle Paul is going for here is unity without uniformity. His hope is that the church can be unified in love and service around Jesus Christ without judging each other for their differences. Can you imagine this? A church filled with kosher Jews who have to sing praises to Jesus alongside Gentiles who still smell like bacon from breakfast. (laughs) A Christian who is saved out of idol worship and finds it impossible to stomach any meat that has been offered to a false god, sharing ministry with a Christian who says, hey, this is just meat, God made it, I'm going to enjoy it. A church in which one group of people believe that they can't drink wine responsibly and others who believe that they can, and both sharing fellowship at the Lord's table. This is Paul's vision of the church, unity without uniformity. Not groupthink, but a community of people who share a common love for one another and a common commitment to Jesus Christ and still have all their differences. Author Ron Sider tells of his experience of worshiping at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem on Easter morning in 1992. Now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is an ancient church built on the presumed site of the tomb of Jesus. And oversight for this church is shared by the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics. Now, these two groups are divided by a good many things, although there's an enormous common ground between them. But one of the things that divides them is the date they celebrate Easter. Their calendar is somewhat different from one another. Well, it was Western Easter, and a Roman Catholic cardinal was leading the group gathered in the church for an Easter celebration, when suddenly a group of Orthodox priests processed into the sanctuary with palm branches loudly celebrating Palm Sunday. One of the Orthodox priests noticed that the candles had been lit outside the tomb, outside the empty tomb, in celebration of Easter. And he marched over, began kicking them over, and snuffing the candles out, shouting, This is not permissible! Candles can only be lit at Easter! Well, a scuffle ensued, and the Israeli police had to intervene. What a way to celebrate Easter or Palm Sunday. To you and I, this sort of conflict between Christians seems ridiculous, unthinkable. 
But then think back to our own experience. Think of the reasons that you've seen churches divide. Was it any less ridiculous? Think of the issues that have separated you from other Christians. Are they any less scandalous to the gospel or any less grievous to God? I recently heard of a church that divided because the members of the congregation couldn't agree over how to spell the church name, Emmanuel with an I or Emmanuel with an E. Now, the tragic irony of this is that Emmanuel means God is with us. How do we testify to the world that God is with us when you have Emmanuel Lutheran Church two blocks away from Emmanuel Lutheran Church? At least they're standing up for their principles, right? When you and I think about the principles that divide Christians, when we think about principles that affect the weaker brother, we need to recognize that in the modern church, the price tags have been switched. When we think about a weaker brother or sister, we usually think about someone whose faith is threatened by the world, someone who is vulnerable. But the Apostle Paul gives us a, quite a different definition. In his view, the weaker brother or sister is a Christian who is full of scruples, a person with an unusually high moral code, a person who doesn't lack self-control, but instead lacks the ability to enjoy the freedom that God has given them in Christ Jesus. This is a weaker brother. We have churches being run and controlled by weaker brothers all across North America. And by using this language of weakness, the Apostle Paul is suggesting that this person is a person whose conscience has not fully developed and therefore needs rules to cover every category. Someone who still sees the world in stark black or white terms. And the tragedy of the modern evangelical church is that we've often lived under the tyranny of the weaker brother or sister. We've decided that their limited, low view of morality is going to be the norm in the church. And we've permitted the weak to become leaders in our communities. But Christians, according to Paul, are not called to a life of constantly looking over their shoulders out of fear of offending the weaker brother. The weaker brother or sister has no business setting the moral standard for the entire body of Christ. In fact, what is implied in this text is that it is the responsibility of the strong to help the weak finally come to maturity in Jesus Christ. The biblical notion is that the weak eventually have to grow up. Paul says we must not permit that which is good to be spoken of as evil. The immature Christian can't persist in immaturity. They can't go on forever calling that which is good evil. Eventually, their theology has to grow to appreciate at least two foundational truths that Paul alludes to in this passage, two foundational theological principles that are at the basis of a strong faith. The first is this. God is the creator of everything. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul is dealing with a similar issue, he reminds his readers 
you are free to eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience at all. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The doctrine of creation reminds us that everything, everything belongs to God and when the weaker Christian suggests that any created thing is evil, whether it be meat or wine or a particular day in the calendar, they're simply wrong because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The second theological principle that is at the foundation of a strong faith is the doctrine of redemption. God is not only the creator of all things, but according to Romans, God is the redeemer of all things. Paul writes, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And the one who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. None of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Paul says, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be, might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And then Paul concludes, as one who belongs to the Lord, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. Do not let that which is good be spoken of as evil, because God is the creator of it, and God is the redeemer of it. The Christian does not need to live in the world in fear, but we can with confidence, because of the doctrines of redemption and creation, we can live with confidence that all of life belongs to the Lord. So then what do we do with this knowledge? Once we understand that these things are good and can be used for the glory of God, do we herd together all the weaker brothers and sisters and cram it down their throats? As someone who grew up under the tyranny of legalism, that's my instinct. But Paul's instinct is far more subtle and much more difficult. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. For one person has enough faith to eat anything, another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who is able to eat everything must not look down on the one who cannot, and the one who has scruples about food must not condemn the one who does not, for God has accepted them both. When we pass judgment on each other, in regard to these disputable matters, we're forgetting again that the Christian gospel is not about merit, but it's about grace. If God has given you the grace and the understanding to enjoy your freedom, don't judge others who have not yet been given that grace. Likewise, if you have principles about something that your brothers or sisters in Christ don't share, you must not judge them on the same basis. Because in the end, it is God's prerogative to judge, not ours. I heard a story in England about a woman who was waiting at a railway depot for a departing train. While she waited, she went to the shop and bought a small packet of cookies. They call them biscuits. She sat down to read her newspaper. 
Within a few minutes, she heard a rustling noise beside her. And from behind her paper, she was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed man helping himself to her biscuits. Not wanting to make a scene, she reached over and helped herself to one of her biscuits. And a minute or two later passed, a minute or two passed, and the man once again helped himself to the packet of biscuits. By this time, they'd come to the end of the package. And she was so angry, she couldn't say anything. Strangely enough, the man took the last biscuit, broke it in half, pushed the half over to her, and ate the remaining half and left. The woman was still fuming by the time her train arrived. And she opened her handbag to get her ticket. And there she found her packet of biscuits. When we judge another person, we assume that we know everything there is to know. In short, we're playing God. But consider this, even what you think you know, Jesus knows everything about your neighbor, and yet he is merciful and compassionate toward them. The person that we're judging on the basis of our knowledge, God who knows all, is showing mercy and grace toward them. For the Apostle Paul, the issue is not whether Christians are vegetarians or can eat meat offered to idols. The issue is not whether Christians can drink wine or need to be teetotalers. He says, because the kingdom of God is not about what we eat or drink. It's about justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what really matters. In the end, there is something far more valuable than your ability to enjoy your freedom in Christ. There's something far more important than getting other Christians to see things your way. It's your responsibility to act in love and mercy toward one another. Whatever you believe about these disputable matters, Paul says that's between you and the Lord. But if you find that your liberty is destructive toward another believer, then you need to modify your behavior when you're in their presence and work toward their eventual maturity. Paul is not calling us to a life of, of moral paranoia where you avoid things just in case somebody's looking. He's calling us to live life together in love with responsibility, dealing with each situation as it arises without judgmentalism. Christian freedom, Christian liberty are important aspects of the Christian gospel. But there's a higher priority of the wholeness of the body of Christ. It's said that in the 1750s, when the British and French were fighting Canada, an Admiral Phipps was the commander of the British fleet who was ordered to anchor outside Quebec and wait for the British land forces to arrive to support him as they attacked the city. Admiral Phipps' navy arrived early, and being a good Puritan, he was greatly annoyed by the statues he saw adorning the towers of a nearby cathedral. So he commanded his soldiers, his men, uh, sailors rather, commanded his men 
to begin shooting at the, the, the statues of saints with the ship's cannons. They spent hours firing on a church, knocking down statues one after another. And later, when the British land forces arrived for the battle, the signal was given to attack. The admiral, the admiral was of no help. He'd used up all his ammunition, ammunition shooting at the saints. When the church becomes preoccupied with judging one another, we become useless to God's kingdom. We're using all our energy shooting at the saints. Judgmentalism is a kind of Christian amnesia. It's forgetting who we are and from where we have come. When we judge, we've come to believe the lie that we ourselves do not deserve judgment. I read a story this week of a Bishop Potter who was sailing for Europe on a transatlantic liner some 50 years ago. After he boarded, he learned that he was sharing a cabin. When he met the man, he found out he was Jewish. Promptly, he went to the purser of the ship and asked if he could leave his gold watch and his valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that normally he wouldn't do such a thing, but he'd met his cabin mate and thought it might be safer this way. The purser remarked, That's all right, Bishop, you don't have to be embarrassed. Your cabin mate was just here and left his valuables for the same reason. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ paints us all with the same brush. None of us escape unscathed apart from Jesus Christ. And none of us is in a position to judge our brother or sister. Jack Parr told a story about a woman he knew when he was a child during the Great Depression. To keep her family from starving, she followed the oldest profession in the world. The neighborhood children loved her because she always had money. She was kind to them. She brought them candy and took an interest in what they did. After the Depression, the woman got religion and became respectable. By then, Jack Parr says he was a teenager. He said the transformation that took, took over the woman was both amazing and disturbing. Before conversion, she'd been kind and generous. Afterward, she became judgmental, suspicious, and haughty. She kept nosing around in our business, he said, and it was clear that she suspected the worst of us. Jack Parr concluded, Every time I meet someone who's judgmental and suspicious of other people, I always wonder what they were doing during the Depression. When we judge one another on disputable matters, we're forgetting who we are. We're forgetting that we are all forgiven sinners. And when we forget that, we've lost sight of the gospel itself. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking but a matter of justice, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.